Welcome to Dayspring Fellowship. I really am so excited that you've decided to join us for this service. You know, people come to church or watch a church service online for lots of reasons. I don't know why you decided to join us for today. But here's something I do know. God is at work in your life and He's brought you here to this place in this moment to accomplish His purposes. Since people grow here, you will leave changed. I trust His work in your life. So can you. I'm Chris Foyt, and I lead the pastoral team here at Dayspring. We have a fantastic team who work tirelessly to help people grow. We love helping you discover the best path forward to deepening your spiritual roots. Whether you are here in the room, or watching online, live, or on demand at some point in the future. If you are visiting Dayspring today, we want you to know that we are a come-as-you-are kind of church. We don't have any perfect people here. We are all in process, working through our junk, and sometimes that is a messy process. So if you can embrace our mess, we'll embrace yours, and together we'll let God work to clean it all up. And if you're just checking out Jesus and church, this is a safe place to bring your questions and doubts. We're all on a journey, and wherever you are in your journey, welcome. You can learn more about us as a church by exploring our website at dsf.church by checking out our Facebook page, or contacting us by phone or email. If you need help figuring out the next step to making Dayspring your church home, or if you just have questions, let us know. We'll help you find the answers. For today's service, you can find study questions by selecting Watch from the top menu of our website. And now, let's join our service. Tell me, have you ever tried to bargain with God? Have you ever tried to bargain with God? Have you ever tried to leverage His power to get Him to do something for you? Uh, when I was a kid, I would do this all the time. It usually had something to do with not getting caught. You know, God, please don't let Dad and Mom find out. If you keep them in the dark, then I'll never do it again. Or, God, if you let me win this swim meet, I'll never ask you for anything again. I got into high school and it became, God, please make her like me the way I like her. If you do, I'll invite her to church next week. (laughs) Or, God, please help me pass this test. If you do, I promise I'll study harder next time. Or, God, please don't let me drive by a policeman right now. (laughs) My dad's one. They all know me. I'll never speed again. Like anyone else? This is, this is a safe place. It's okay to raise your hands and fess up. Unless the statute of limitations hasn't run out, then you should probably keep it down. Bargaining with God changes a little when you become an adult. A bigger people have bigger problems. But the essence is still the same. All of us do it at some point in our lives. Even people who don't believe in a personal God or aren't sure there is a personal God, uh, most of us have faced something that that thing that we've tried to get God on our side for, tried to get God to do what we wanted God to do, tried to leverage his power for our purposes. And many times it's totally legit. As someone you love dearly is going through something really hard, your kid, your spouse, your parent, and you've said, God, I'll do anything if you'll heal her, if you'll fix that or make this 
better. All of us, regardless of our faith, regardless of whether or not we are Christians, have tried to say something to the effect of, God, what do I need to do to get you to do what I need you to do? God, I pray, I promise, I'll never, I'll always. We bargain with our prayers. We bargain with our church attendance. We bargain with our money or our promise to give or give more. We bargain with our obedience. I'll never do this thing again if only you don't let me get caught this time. And to some extent, all of us have tried to figure out how to get God to do what we want him to do. Or maybe that's in your past because in the past you tried to bargain with God and he didn't do what you wanted him to do. So you walked away. Since God didn't, you don't. Forget God. If God had done what you wanted, if he had behaved the way you thought God ought to behave, cared the way you think God ought to care, then you would have believed. You would have continued to believe. Which brings us to today's bad boy of Easter. Uh, Today's character was a guy who tried to get Jesus to do his bidding. And when Jesus wouldn't do what this guy wanted Jesus to do, this guy bailed. He walked away. Enough is enough. And this is important enough for us to talk about because as you're already piecing together, there is a little bit of him in all of us. I know that's true because when I asked if you'd ever bargained with God, everybody in the room, everybody online watching from wherever you're watching, everyone, regardless of faith, smiled or chuckled, at least on the inside. Because we've all felt this tension with God at some point in our lives. Today's character was a pretender, and in the end, he was even a traitor. He viewed every situation from three sides, the right side, the wrong side, and the what's in it for me side. We're talking about Judas Iscariot. For Judas, Jesus was always a means to an end, and that end was himself. He was riding Jesus' coattails for more power, more money, and more glory for himself. But hold back on your judgment for a moment. We're going to see a little bit of ourselves in Judas by the time we're done today. And we're going to see that this attitude wasn't just a Judas problem. All of the disciples, all 12 of them struggled with this. Jesus was a means to an end for all of them to some extent. If you grew up in church, you might remember this story. Uh, If you look in your Bible, it's the story of the rich young ruler. I'm not really sure why they called him rich, the rich young ruler. Nobody really knows whether he was young uh, or nor why they called him a ruler. But that's just the way they translated the original language into English. But this guy comes to Jesus and asks, Jesus, what do I have to do to have eternal life? And Jesus tells him, well, you need to keep the law and the commandments. He says, well, I've kept all of the laws and commandments perfectly which we all know wasn't true. But Jesus responds with, fantastic, you're almost in. Now all you have to do is sell everything you have, give the money to the poor, and literally follow me. Which takes the wind out of the sails of the rich young ruler. And the story ends with him just walking away disappointed. He had too much stuff and it was too important to him, so there was no way that he could or would do that. As he walks away, Jesus tells his disciples, it's it's difficult for rich people. 
It's difficult for rich people with a lot of stuff to lose. It's difficult for people with a lot of stuff to lose to follow me. All of the disciples just looked at each other thinking, whoa. And then Peter, who often confuses his inside voice with his outside voice, <laughs> he, says, he says this, we've given up everything to follow you. Now, he probably should have stopped there. <laughs> but he continues, what will we get? Like, what will we get? What's in it for us? That's the question we ask. Okay, God, I've done what you wanted. I gave up my Sunday mornings. I've even started giving. I got out of that relationship. I stopped using bad language. God, I did this for you. Now what's in it for me? What's the benefit? Where's the blessing for me? That's the question they were asking, the question that Judas asked all the time, because for Judas, Jesus was always a means to an end, a means to his end. And then all 12 disciples at the end of Jesus' ministry, when it looked like all was lost, when it, when it looked like there was nothing in it for them, when Jesus was arrested and they realized that the Jesus train that they were on was suddenly derailed, they all walked away, every single one of them. They all walked away because there was nothing in it for them anymore. So even for all 12 disciples, Jesus, to, to some extent, was a means to an end. But they all came back, except for one, Judas Iscariot. Judas had Old Testament expectations of Jesus. You see, uh, the Old Testament taught that one day God would send a Messiah to the Jews, a Savior. Uh, and the Jews thought he would be a political leader, uh, a military leader, uh, someone who in their context was going to rid them of royal Roman rule and return them to the golden age of David and Solomon and everything that was associated with the, all of those great stories in the Old Testament. And for Judas, as he watched Jesus, he saw that Jesus had many of the Old Testament characteristics that the Old Testament prophets said he would have, with a few exceptions. And those exceptions were a problem for Judas. One of them being that he didn't hate the Romans. And no matter how much people tried to stir up animosity between Jesus and the Romans, he just didn't hate the Romans. Another problem with Jesus was this ongoing thing he had with the religious leaders. Everyone around Jesus knew that in order to, have the, to get the kind of movement started that would eject Rome from Israel, they would have to bring together, they would have to unite Galilee and Judea and the temple and the temple leaders. And Jesus was just too passive most of the time. And he, and he wouldn't save enough money. You need money to fund a revolution. But every time their treasury began to, to grow, Jesus would just give the funds away. So he, he didn't seem to have the energy, he didn't have the focus, and Judas didn't have the patience. But he hung in there, trying to get Jesus to do what he wanted, until, well, something happened that was the final straw. He couldn't take it anymore. It was an act of extraordinary generosity that pushed Judas over the edge. It's a familiar story to many of us, and it takes place in a little village named Bethany, the same Bethany where Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, as we talked about last week. It's about a mile and a half east of Jerusalem. We'd think of it as a suburb today. 
Now, here's what Matthew tells us happened. Meanwhile, now that's meanwhile, meaning while the religious leaders were plotting to kill Jesus. Meanwhile, Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon, a man who had previously had leprosy. No one knows really who Simon the leper was, but apparently the people in the first century did. I would suggest that he probably was healed by Jesus since he previously had leprosy. And while he was eating, a woman came in with a beautiful alabaster jar of expensive perfume and poured it over his head which seems a little weird to us, but get this. They're all reclining around the table, which means they're leaning back on their elbows, not sitting in chairs like we do. And they're being served a meal. And this woman walks in carrying an alabaster bottle of perfume. It doesn't say it here in Matthew, but John the disciple tells us that Lazarus was at this meal with Jesus. His sister, Martha, was serving them dinner, and this woman was his other sister, Mary. Now, there's no way to know for sure, but at the time, it was common for these bottles of perfume to be a part of the woman's bride price or or dowry. They took them into their marriages with them. To the best of our knowledge, Mary was unmarried. So she could have been saving this bottle of perfume for her wedding day. It represented her future, her financial security, and here she was pouring it over Jesus. Like if all of this is true, from her perspective, she was investing in her future. These alabaster jars were sealed at the top to prevent evaporation. They didn't have lids on them like bottles do today. The only way to open them was to break the neck of the container. And once the neck of the container was broken, you had to use everything that was in the container all at once. So she breaks the neck of the bottle and begins to pour this perfume down the back of Jesus' hair and combing it through. The aroma filled the room. It probably leaked out of the room into the streets. John the disciple gives us a detail in his gospel that Matthew doesn't. John tells us that this jar of perfume was worth about a year's wages. Now think about that for a minute so we can wrap our heads around the disciples' response. In the United States, according to the Census Bureau, the average median household income in 2020 was $67,521. So let's say that this jar of perfume was only worth 33,000, just half of that, 33,000 and change. You know, let's just drop it to 5,000. Let's let's just say that it was worth $5,000. It's still ridiculous, isn't it? That you would take something worth $5,000 or even $2,000 or $1,000 and waste it by pouring it over someone's head when you could have split it up into smaller vials, sold it, and done something else with the money. Just used a little bit on Jesus. Maybe even give it to the, the money to the poor. It was unthinkable. So you can understand why there was this collective gasp in the room when she broke this jar open and began to waste all of the perfume on Jesus. So when the disciples saw this, the disciples were indignant. What a waste, they said. 
It could have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. Now, of course, Jesus saw all of this commotion and knew what they were talking about. Jesus always knew what they were talking about, including the hidden motivations behind what they were talking about. But Jesus, aware of this, replied, why criticize this woman for doing such a good thing to me? First of all, who cares? It's her perfume. She can do whatever she wants with it. She can pour it out on the ground if she wants to. It's none your business. Second of all, why are you bothering this woman? She is doing a beautiful thing for me. She has honored me. She has elevated my status. She has shown through this act how much respect she has for me. <laughs> you will always have the poor among you. Now, this is a well-known verse, but don't miss this next part. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. What do, you, what do you mean we won't always have you? For those of you children of the 80s, what you talking about, Willis? <laughs> she has poured this perfume on me to prepare my body for burial. Hold on. Back up a second. Burial? Burial like dead and buried burial? You can't die. You're Jesus. You're the Messiah. Messiahs don't die. Do you know how long we've been waiting for you? Our fathers and our fathers' fathers and their fathers all the way back to Abraham have been waiting for you. We've been waiting for the blessing that God promised our nation and the whole world through the nation of Israel. Don't you realize that you are the person the prophet spoke of? Do you realize that we gave up everything for you? We're all in, and you can't die. You're the Messiah. Don't start talking about a funeral. You can't die. What good is a dead Messiah? But the real issue, the unspoken one, if you die, what's going to happen to us? As you go, so we go. So don't start talking about dead and buried. All of a sudden, they've forgotten all about the perfume and all of the fuss. Now it's all about what's going to happen to them. And then, what comes out of Jesus' mouth next should make you take Jesus seriously, especially if you're skeptical of Jesus. This is, this is worth pondering for a while. I tell you the truth. Wherever the good news is preached throughout the world, this woman's deed will be remembered and discussed. Wherever this story is told. Wait a minute. Story? What story? We're, we're in Bethany in the middle of nowhere, and it's just 15 of us. What story? Wherever the story of Jesus is told, wherever the, the story of Jesus is told in the world, this little snippet, this scene will be replayed over and over again. Now, just out of curiosity, how many of you had already heard this story before you came in today? You heard it or read it? You see, that should make you sit up straight and think about Jesus more seriously. Jesus didn't just predict his death and resurrection. Jesus predicted that many years, thousands of years in the future, 
all over the world in languages that were then unknown, in countries that hadn't even been established, that this incident, this experience would be shared all over the world. What she has done will be told over and over and over in memory of her. Most of you have already heard the story. And for those of you who haven't, well, now you have. You are seeing prophecy fulfilled right before your very eyes. They're just eating dinner, upset over some stupid perfume, unaware that they are part of history in the making. Now, I know that Christians can be weird, and you aren't really sure about some of that fantastical stuff you've heard about, like Noah's Ark and things like that. I, I get that. But this is why you should take the teaching of Jesus more seriously. And the New Testament is filled with moments like this, moments where Jesus predicted that what they were a part of, their experiences with Jesus would be recorded and shared, and thousands of years later, people would still be talking about them. These moments would change the world. But that would come later. Now, John gives us a little more detail about what went on at this little dinner gathering. He tells us that it wasn't just that the disciples were up in arms about this supposedly wasted perfume. John tells us that it was Judas who was stirring up this animosity toward this woman. And John tells us that Judas wasn't upset one little iota about money being given to the poor. Judas was the treasurer, and John, who knew Judas personally, calls Judas a thief because Judas used to steal money from the treasury that Jesus and the disciples used to fund their travels all over Judea and Galilee. For Judas, this was the straw that broke the camel's back. This was the end. Here you are, supposedly the Messiah, we're supposed to conquer Rome, restore Israel, and you allow all of this money that could be used to pay for a revolution to be wasted on you. I think this has become a little bit too much about you, Jesus. I think you've lost perspective. Maybe I've wasted the last few years of my life following you because this isn't going anywhere. Uh, maybe I need to do something different with my life because I'm not sure I can trust you anymore. And then we see in Matthew, the very next thing that happens, Judas Iscariot makes his way to Caiaphas, the high priest, a mile and a half away in Jerusalem. Maybe he even excused himself from dinner and walked a mile and a half to take care of some business. Still in Matthew. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the 12 disciples, went to the leading priests and asked, how much will you pay me to betray Jesus to you? And they gave him 30 pieces of silver. What are you willing to give me? Now, we, we don't really know what Judas was thinking in this moment. Did he think it was just over and finished and he wanted to set himself up for the future? Did he, or did he think that he was owed something for all of the time that he had wasted waiting for Jesus to evict Rome from Israel? Or did he hope to force Jesus' hand? Uh, hoping that Jesus would be forced to throw off his rabbinical robe and start acting like the Messiah, finally. We're not sure why. But whatever it was, Judas knew one thing was for sure. He was going to come out of it richer. He was going to profit. So from that time on, Judas began looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus. 
Now, if you were here uh, last week, you already know the answer to this. What kept the Pharisees and religious leaders and Caiaphas from arresting Jesus themselves? Why did they need the help of Judas? One word. None of, one, none of you were here last week. One word, crowds. The crowds. Everywhere Jesus went, there were crowds, and those crowds made arresting Jesus publicly very tricky. But Judas was an insider. He was a highly placed mole in the non-government of Jesus. And he says to this, to this group of religious leaders, I can get Jesus away from the crowd and deliver him to you where there isn't a crowd. Now that would be worth something. So they counted out 30 pieces of silver. What's the price of a man's life? 30 pieces of silver. About four months wages at that time. Now think about this. Judas had a front row seat to every spectacular thing that Jesus did. He sat at the foot of the perfect rabbi. He ate with him, laughed with him, dreamed with him. But when he couldn't get Jesus to do what he wanted, he traded his relationship with Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. It was basically the price of a slave. Think about all of the times you've been tempted to trade in your relationship with Jesus. And before you think, I've never been tempted to do that, what about the times you've willfully chosen to do your own thing instead of his? Isn't that the same thing? You're choosing you over Jesus. Your wisdom over his wisdom. Your provision over his provision. Your plan over his plan. Faith in you over faith in him. It's not all that different. It all begins to look like 30 pieces of silver if you're brave enough to be honest with yourself. I'm not getting out of this what I want, so I'm going to do it my way. From this moment on, Judas watched for the perfect opportunity to hand Jesus over. Today is Palm Sunday. We kind of think of it as the beginning of the countdown to the cross. For the Jews, this would be Passover week. Every year, Jews from all over the world would come to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. They'd been celebrating it for more than 1,300 years. Uh, since that faithful, fateful night when the angel of the Lord passed over their homes and killed the firstborn in every Egyptian home. The night before, they began the journey to the promised land. So the night of Passover, Jesus sent some disciples into Jerusalem to find a place for them to celebrate a Passover meal together. Uh, their last Passover meal together before his crucifixion, not that any of them but Jesus knew that. Those disciples find a place and prepare for Passover. And the sun goes down and Je Jesus enters Jerusalem. They gather in what has become known as the upper room. And they, they began talking together as they're waiting for dinner. And then Jesus does something really weird. He takes off his rabbinical robe, the sign of his authority, and he puts a towel around his waist and he begins to wash the disciples' feet. And as he begins, they're indignant. No, you're not washing our feet. That's a servant's job and you're not a servant. You're the Messiah. Jesus responds like this. Watch what I'm doing. Learn how to do it. I'm setting the bar for the rest of your life. You think I'm too important to wash feet? Well, I'm washing your feet. When you start thinking you're too important, you start washing feet too. 
And Peter's like, "Uh uh-uh, no way. You aren't washing my feet. And Jesus says, yes, Peter, I am. And then when he's finished, he puts back his, on his robe and he says, follow me. Follow my example. Do this for other people. And as the evening goes on, someone suggests making their way to Gethsemane to pray for the, uh, before returning to Bethany for the night. And Judas has his moment. The moment he's been waiting for. It's time. It'll be dark. No crowds. It's the perfect time to deliver Jesus to Caiaphas. But he has a problem. How does he get out of the room to let them know? It's not like he can text them. I mean, think about it. His mind is running through plausible reasons that he could use to excuse himself. And then in one chilling moment, Jesus announces to everyone that someone is going to betray him. The other disciples are confused. They're like, what? Not me. What are you talking about, Jesus? And Judas had to be panicking inside. He knows everything. Why did I think I could pull this off without him knowing? I'm not going to make it out of here alive because with my luck, the next thing that's going to happen is Jesus is going to uh, to out me to the guys. And in the midst of the chaos, Jesus turns to Judas, looks him right in the eye with all of the love of the universe and tells him to go do what he's got to do. Yes, Judas, I know what you have planned, but I'm not going to stop you. Go. No one else caught it. They all thought Jesus had just sent him on an errand. But as soon as he was gone, Jesus turns to the rest, and he says, The time has come for the Son of Man to enter into his glory, and God will be glorified because of him. In other words, it's all going according to plan. A reminder that God's hand cannot be forced. His will cannot be thwarted. As we learned last week, Judas, it's not your will that's being done, but God's perfect will. We don't know what Judas was thinking as he made his way to Caiaphas. But given that he can't live with the reality of what happened, he's probably thinking the temple guard will arrest him and take him to Caiaphas. They'll ask him some questions, interrogate him some more, maybe even punish him, maybe put him in, in jail or exile him or whatever. I've got my 30 pieces of silver. It's not my problem anymore. And then he watched it play out from the sidelines. When he found out that Caiaphas had gone to Pilate, he put two and two together. There was only one reason that Caiaphas would go to Pilate. He wanted a death sentence. The one thing he didn't have the authority to do. The Jews were allowed to punish people according to Jewish law up to, but not including, death. For for that, Caiaphas needed the permission of Rome, and Judas knew it. And realized what he'd done. We know from Matthew that Judas was overcome with remorse, and he returned those 30 silver coins to the high priest and religious leaders. We got the framework for this series from Pastor Andy Stanley, and Andy puts it like this, what was of extraordinary value one minute had no value the next. What was worth trading Jesus in for one minute was an embarrassment the next. 
What he sacrificed his relationship with Jesus for one minute was something that he wished he'd never done the next. As we talked about last week, my greatest regret, your greatest regret is associated with something that isn't even a part of your life anymore because it no longer has any value. Judas's greatest regret was trying to force God's hand. I have sinned, he declared, for I have betrayed an innocent man. What do we care? They retorted. That's your problem. That's your responsibility. And in the end, Judas couldn't live with himself. He'd gained 30 pieces of silver and lost his soul, so he went out and hanged himself. Now, here's why this is important and why we need to pay attention. I can't tell you how many times I've had someone in my office or over a Diet Coke or dinner ask me for advice about what would Jesus do? And as they've walked out, I just knew they were going to make the wrong choice. They put on a good front to seem spiritual, but in their heart, they had already decided. And as they leave, I know they are going to hurt themselves. They're going to hurt others, and they're going to regret their decision to trade Jesus for something that will never last. We are all one bad decision away from something, from making something or someone more important than Jesus. When we resist God rather than surrender, then like Judas, we are responsible for the outcome. It's all on us. God won't get in the way of me having my way. He won't get in the way of you having your way. And he won't rob us of the responsibility and the outcome that come with our decision. That ought to send chills down our spine. Not because God is scary, but because he honors our freedom so much that he won't interfere even if what you are doing undermines your own success and happiness. When Ju Judas didn't get what he wanted from Jesus, he traded his relationship with Jesus for something that immediately lost value. It lost its appeal, and I get it because Judas's story is my story. I've done it time and time again. I still do it because it's easier than surrendering. Resisting and arguing with God is easier than surrendering to him, easier than saying, have your way, God. But here's the promise. While resisting and trading puts the responsibility for the outcome on us, surrendering does just the opposite. When we surrender, God takes the responsibility for the outcome. When we finally give up, when we finally acknowledge that it isn't worth losing your peace, isn't worth losing your integrity, isn't worth not being able to end your day with a clear conscience, it isn't worth it anymore. When we finally get to that place, he's still there waiting and willing to start again. And he takes up the responsibility for the outcome once again. The safest, most secure place to be, the most purpose-filled place you will ever find yourself is in the center of God's will, which begins with, I give up. Yes, it's risky to give yourself up to a God you cannot see, touch, or feel. But on the other hand, I've seen the mess I can make of my own life. With my best efforts, without God, they, they never work out. They never work for my good. And if you're honest with yourself, neither do yours. Your best efforts might have brought you to bankruptcy. 
maybe drove your kids away, broke your marriage, left you addicted to something that's eating you from the inside out, made you do things that are too terrible to think about. Your best efforts probably leave you bound in fear and anxiety about what tomorrow brings. Give up. Let God. There's a beauty in surrender. There's peace in surrender. There's joy in surrender. I want to invite you just to to bow your heads for a moment. And just in, in these moments, ask yourself this question. On a, I, I like to think about it this way. On a scale of one to 10, where, where one is, I just started the path, so maybe zero to 10. Zero is I, I'm not even in a relationship with God. And 10 is I'm like Jesus. On a scale of zero to 10, where are you in your surrender? What, what is holding you back? What, what is God calling you to surrender in this moment? I know there's something. Because the only, only person who's ever been Jesus is Jesus. I was thinking about this this week, and, you know, at those uh, smaller levels, at one, two, and three, it's, it's usually stuff that's relatively easy to get rid of. It's the obvious stuff. But you get to the six, seven, eight, nine, wherever you are in that, and that's the stuff that Jesus is probably going to have to pry out of your cold, dead hands someday. If it were easy to surrender, you would have done it long ago. That's what he's calling you to surrender. Another way to to think about this is at the point that you enter into a relationship with Jesus, you begin pouring out perfume pouring out a sacrifice, the sacrifice of your life to Jesus. If you've ever walked through a department store, through the the makeup and perfume section of the department store, you know that not every perfume is equal. Some of them smell fantastic, and others far less than that. You you are pouring your life out for Jesus, but in the end, what you smell like, what the aroma is like, is based on what's going on in your heart. So, what does that look like? It really is an understatement to say... You deserve this whole jar of perfume. Of course you do. But we've been holding back. 
whatever it is, Father, that you are calling us to surrender in each one of our lives. Maybe surrender for the first time. Maybe it's that thing that uh, you just never thought that you'd be able to let go of. Father, give us the courage to say yes, to give it all up and to let you do your thing. Give us the wisdom to know how to surrender, to get help if we need it. We pray in Jesus' name. Thank you for joining us today. Let me encourage you to download the study questions by selecting Watch from the top menu of our website. Working through those questions, alone or with others, will help the truth of God's Word find its place in your life. Please reach out if you have any questions or want help on your spiritual journey. My email address is on the screen, or you can call the church during the week. This ministry is made possible because of people like you, people who believe in what God is doing through Dayspring. Your financial generosity is proof of God's work in your life. If you are just checking us out today, please know that we don't expect you to give anything to support Dayspring. That is the responsibility of Dayspringers. Just enjoy the rest of your day. If you'd like to start giving, we have three easy ways for you to get us your gift. Please see the online giving section of our website, or text GIVE to the number on your screen, or mail a check to us at the address you'll find on our website. Also, thank you for liking and sharing and following Dayspring on whatever platform you are on. It means a lot to me when you pass on the good news of Jesus to your friends and family. Until next week, may you experience God's favor and blessing in your life.